This episode of Nordic Nation is brought to you by the Masters World Cup 2018 to be held in Worth Park in downtown Minneapolis. This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we chat with U.S. ski team coach Matt Wickham. We connected with Wickham at his parents' house in Western Massachusetts on November 10th. Wickham has now already jumped the pond and is in Europe prepping for the first World Cup on November 23rd. Wickham discusses an array of topics but places particular emphasis on how he attempts to connect with athletes and coming down with a heavy hand on Russia for the Pyeongchang Games this February. Okay, on to the interview. You know, how old are you and how did you get into skiing? And who are you? I am, I'm Matt Whitcomb. I, I'm 39 years old and I'll be 40 in June. I've been ski coaching since 2001 at, at some level and doing so every year. I started in, well, actually started in Bend, volunteering with MBSEF when Husaby worked for them. Oh, really? A handful of practices with them. I was filling in a position for one of their old old coaches who had actually passed away, Chris Walski, earlier that spring, and I really wanted to help his team out, and and, and that really set the hook for me. And then uh, went to Whitefish, Montana, to just figure out life and be a ski bum and buy a snowmobile. And within two days, I I met Pete Phillips, who had just had an ankle surgery, and he needed an assistant coach. So I said, yeah, that's a great way where I'll be able to save up and buy a snowmobile and backcountry skis, and which I never did, and had an incredible winter with Pete that winter, got a job offer from Burke Mountain Academy, their Norwegian coach, Stane Morton Goldbrunson from northern Norway, Trumps, offered his job to me because he was leaving. So I spent four years there, and then some athletes did well, and that basically got me a job on the national team. Four years at Burke and then U.S. ski team? Yeah, they hired someone who was too inexperienced, <laughs> really took a really took a chance with me and i was grateful that luke and pete did that and one of the athletes you're closely associated with in particular from burke is liz were liz steven were, were you her coach for all four years when she was there i was but i was trying to remember this i think when i first showed up she was still an alpine skier but her number one passion was running and the headmaster at the time, Kirk Dwyer, who's now in Vail, he was really the guy who talked Liz into switching sports. He saw this, this little high schooler uh, who was becoming afraid of the gates but had an incredible uh, aerobic lust. She loved cross-country running. And training for Alpine was really fun for her, but everything just pointed her in the direction of skiing. So she was the easiest uh, recruit in the history of Burke, I think. It was just meant to be. So this next question is, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially in the off-season, about developing athletes. And maybe thinking of, you know, what you experienced at Burke, and, and very few coaches have the opportunity to see an athlete through the entire course of their career uh, like you have i mean you've gosh I, rough math is like 15 years or something probably 
having something to do with Liz as a as a Nordic athlete. Yeah, it is about that. What's the most difficult thing you've encountered about developing athletes? Ooh. This isn't spe- specific to Liz, but but certainly she is the athlete I've worked with the longest. But I think it's just working with humans, just the fact that we are humans. We have so many ideas and, and come preloaded with opinions. It's just, it's just hard to work with humans, but it's also really hard to be one. And so as soon as you realize that, I think you can sift through a lot of the hurdles, accept who we are, and and move on a little bit. But if you if you show up at a job, a ski coaching job in this instance, and expect it to be smooth sailing, I don't think it's going to be. At least that's been my experience. And as far as developing athletes, the trick for me has just been to figure out how to best work with a variety of different humans. Everybody has their own unbelievable brain with ideas that are so different than my own. And that, that has been probably my biggest hurdle. I always loved Prefontaine's quote, and it was something like, uh, I've always, re- I've, the thing I've always admired about coaches is that they work with humans, or, or something like that. That's a heavy paraphrase. And I always, I always thought about that, and every day that went by, it made more and more sense to me as I coached more and more. You know, as you get older, and, you know, I, I, most people, hopefully, as they get older, they let their ego wane a little bit and expose themselves, I guess, make themselves a little bit more vulnerable, you know, because it's like, what do you have to lose? And it sounds like in your job, much of what it is is human relationships. What would you tell or what do you tell someone new to the team that doesn't know you and is like, hey, this is kind of how I, you know, yes, you have to know the athletes, but the athletes need to know you. Um, what do you tell them specifically about you in terms of how you might operate? I, I tend to function a little bit more organically. And I think that's the, that's the fancy way of saying chaotically. Uh, when it comes to, you know, somebody new arrives to the team, how I would deal with them. But I think it would boil down, if I actually had a system in place, it would boil down to something about us not chasing winning at all costs, but chasing trying to win and really, really chasing excellence and becoming the best, in this case, cross-country skier that we can possibly be. Because I can never guarantee that the athlete is going to win, but I can almost guarantee, or, or I can completely guarantee that the athlete can chase excellence and become great at cross-country skiing. And you can be a great cross-country skier and still basically lose the World Cup race. But when we have equal accountability on on the mission, and that is to not win at all costs, because we, even with a team that has experienced recent success on the World Cup, uh, we take many more beatings than we do give <laughs> uh, them. And if, if, if the number one goal is to win for both a coach and an athlete, you're quickly going to run into these problems because there just isn't that much winning. If the goal is to pursue excellence, you can have success 90% of the time. And that other 10% is just when, when we sort of let our human flaws uh, rise to the top and, and we make mistakes. And, but you can have success as a coach when you have that sort of equal accountability towards just chasing excellence. Right. We, I mean, it is fun to win. That is great because it's, 
nothing, nothing's more fun than high fives and and uh, just celebrating success with with a big group of people. But when I think when both parties just just agree to practice excellence, to be professional, to become as good as we can, not just as an athlete, but also me as a coach, then the road's clear for you, and you've removed all the hurdles, and in this way, you're probably more likely to win anyways. It strikes me that you you guys have a very good system in place. Is that something that's become like highly evolved at this point? Or did you guys realize when, you know, the core group of you, uh, Jason Cork and Chris Grover were, were in place, uh, was that pretty high functioning within a few months? Or is that something that's been like a year to year process? It's been year to year, but really it started from day one when, or, or I jumped into a ship that was already sailing because Pete had been with the team for four years and he had just taken the helm and offered me a job. And the very first camp we had in, in Oregon, uh, actually, I think this was Park City, we, we had a sports psychologist named John Hammermeister and we started working on team. And he drew a circle on the board and it was a reasonably large circle, and he put a dot, a bunch of dots, all throughout it. Some were inside the circle, and some were outside of the circle. And then he started crossing out the dots on the outside of the circle. And he said, you have a lot of freedom within this huge circle, but for this team to work, you have to be in the circle in some capacity. And so this, this was already happening the day that I arrived. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a good visual because it's you know it, the sport sometimes tends to attract individuals who are totally copacetic and can be become incredibly high functioning athletes by skiing alone and training alone in the woods. You know, yeah. So it's a, I, I suppose important to be mindful that like you are part of a team and it needs to be functioning properly. You know, coaches included. Yeah, exactly. And that wood steer that person that really loves just being out there in the forest by themselves, perhaps they're closer to the edge of the circle. But as a team, you've all agreed that they're still in it. Uh, they're given, they can use the team in different ways than somebody who's just smack dab in the center. Like someone like Liz is. She really thrives on a team. That's in her, it's in her DNA. And that's in the, in the DNA of a lot of the athletes on our team, but not all. And we can't really change... <laughs> who people are. We just have to work with who they are. You know, who in particular, and, and it doesn't need to be one individual, but I'm just, you know, me mentors or people that are someone who may continue to mentor you and what they've passed on to you in terms of coaching. The one that is, I'm, I'm going to leave my, I'm going to leave my family out of it because, because I talk about them all day long. Everybody lists their parents. Sorry, parents. It would be Ed Hamill. Who's, who's from Western Massachusetts, and he and his wife started the Western Mass Bill Coke League back in the, back in the 80s. And he uh, very quickly with his wife built this league of dozens of athletes and soon well over 100 athletes. We weren't even athletes. We were just kids skiing, and it was separated into groups based on your ability level and sort of your age too. But the better you are, the more badass. Are we allowed to swear? Oh, it's kind of encouraged, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> good. I should have asked that before. Yeah, sorry. No, it's all good. You know, sort of the more badass mountain you were assigned, uh, better or older you were. And so I was right from the beginning, since I was there early, I just automatically was in the Everest group. 
and then other it went all the way down to the Greylocks and the Monadnocks and uh, and my little brother was always in one of those like smaller uh, hiking mountains that nobody's ever died on and I just got to be on Everest my whole uh, junior career basically but Ed taught us about creativity and adventure we would do the just the most adventurous workouts where we seldom spent any time on trails it was about slashing up your legs uh it might be a run but we would spend uh 20 minutes swimming somehow during that run or trudging through mud or climbing trees or scaling cliffs and he really just he really just made us all love the sport and really love people and working with people. And we had girls and guys on this team training together side by side. And he created just something so great for me that, that made me love my career as an athlete all the way through college. But then it just stuck with me because it had become me into my coaching. Ed, Ed's, Ed's the guy. And his wife, his wife Mary, deserves a, uh, every bit of <laughs> mention because uh, she supported us and was always this uh, stable figure that and just friend we always had. Hey folks, a quick break here to read a note from our sponsor. This episode of Nordic Nation is brought to you by the 2018 Masters World Cup in Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you are concerned about the prospect of low snow, here's Masters World Cup Chief of Competition Nels Deisty to alleviate any low snow fears. We've had a lot of large races here at Worth Park, and so we're kind of prepared for everything. We've had huge snow years where we've been able to ski into May and lower snow years. Right now, we have snowmaking capabilities on a little over three and a half kilometers. And over the summer, we've been making some big investments. We have a water cooling tower, increased snowmaking, and grooming equipment. And uh, we expect to be able to, to groom out a, a little over seven and a half kilometers here this winter. Registration for the Masters World Cup in Minneapolis, Minnesota is open. You can go to mwc2018.com for all the details. Um, okay, so race day. And yeah, so it can be kind of hectic. I know you guys are out there super early testing skis. I've seen you out there very early in the morning testing skis, you know, hands on, but What's the biggest stressor for you? Sleep deprivation is probably the thing that, that tends to hit me the most negatively. Um, but I, just in general, I can't say I don't get stressed out, but I tend to get more excitedly stressed rather than negatively stressed, if that makes sense. I don't have these, uh, these demons that are just ready to stab me if we don't win. Uh, I really enjoy the excitement of the pursuit of winning every day. And in fact, it's even a little bit of a letdown after we have one because it's, it's like, it should come to this podium ceremony where everybody gets to express all their feelings and feel the, the climax of the work that has gone into that victory. And for me, it's just a letdown. Honestly, I love taking a photo of the podium, but it's, it's sort of like, Oh, that's the end of the day. But the whole day has been so much excitement whether we've done well or not, there's just so much passion and emotion that goes into it from so many people. So I experience a lot of excited stress and seldom negative stress, but occasionally the negative stress can, can come out and I would say sleep deprivation uh, can, can trigger that. 
So, um, you know, during stressful situations, what, what centers you the most? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, it's, I have a pretty easy life, a lot of support in my life. So, uh, there's a lot of different ways that I can think or think back to my cabin in the woods and just get grounded that way. But honestly, and this sounds like a pitch for job security, but Chris is really talented. I think Chris Grover at making you feel like he's in it with you. It's a, you know, so if you feel like you're stressed over a certain situation and somebody else impresses upon you that they're right with you, you know, I'm in this fight with you. You suddenly feel uh, much better. And Chris is so good about really impressing upon the entire team, uh, staff athletes alike, wax techs, coaches that, that he's right in there with you. You know, he's, he's up early with you. He's testing skis when he can. And, and that is sharing that, burden the stress associated with competition is a great way of dealing with it and you know this is something like kind of a a little bit of a and maybe this kind of gets into like how chris grover treats his job but and, and there's a lot of talk about you know coaches especially the junior ranks it's like look you know unless you get lucky or you know, or, you know, you have this amazing athlete. I mean, primarily the job is create decent human beings, but that's not necessarily your mandate. I mean, your mandate has a lot to do with, uh, I suppose, hardware. And I don't want to make it, you know, or, or render it down just to that. But you obviously, I'm sure, have performance benchmarks or what have you with job evaluations. But, you know, how much of your job as ski coach is, what we think of as a traditional ski coach and how much is, is psychologist? That's a really good question. And I think it first comes down to a coach needs to know how to work with other humans before they can become a good coach. And so you have to have a good command of your own head and emotions, your brain, and, and then you have to know how to work with someone else's brain. And that is basically psychology. And once you have that established, you don't have to be perfect at it, but accept that that's kind of your key to opening the, the coaching door. Then you can coach. Then you can talk technique. <laughs> you can talk training. You can be constructive or complimentary because you know what you're dealing with. But you can't just, as easy as it sounds, you can't compliment everybody. If you compliment somebody at the wrong time, they're going to think you're full of shit because you might be. But if you compliment them at the right time, it might actually help them. And if you're constructive with criticism, at the wrong time, you might set your whole relationship back a year or indefinitely. But if you hit them at the right time, they might become a better ski racer. So I think that is knowing when to coach <laughs> has has its elements of psychology that you first have to understand. I don't know if any of yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That's confusing stuff. And No, it makes sense. It, it does make sense. I mean, it's like, how do you access the individual if you haven't like established you know, basic trust first, you know? Okay. So a little bit of a non sequitur here, but this, this, um, obviously doping has been in the news of late, uh, with, you know, the IOC coming down with some sanctions in the past two weeks on some Russian athletes. And just prior to those IOC announcements, I think Tiger Shaw went on the record and Tiger is the, I think, CEO of U.S. Ski and Snowboard? That's right. I actually had to look it up recently. It's CEO and president. 
So like the heads of national federations tend to be, it seems to, seems like a little more coded or just unwilling to go on record. And I guess maybe historically uncommon, but Tiger came out and was pretty outspoken about cheats in the sport and about cleaning up the sport. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on the role of a coach in particular and when it comes to like proactively advocating for clean sport and sort of making statements in the media? First, you know, I, while I loved Bill Marolt as a person, I am proud to work for Tiger and with Tiger because of the, the stance that he's taken to clean up sport. He's not just trying to clean it up for U.S. ski and snowboarding. He's, he's trying to clean up sport because he knows what it means to compete as a clean athlete and the negative effects of having cheaters in sport. I'm so motivated by Tiger's stance. I can't tell you how much uh, reinvigoration I felt this entire year. Uh, and this goes to Luke, uh, but also our chairman of the board, Dexter Payne. These guys are fighting for us and with us now, rather than just playing the politics. Not saying these particular guys were in the past, but people in their positions tend to play the politics so that you down the line benefit from how you played a certain situation. And these guys are saying to hell with that. And because it's, it's for the betterment of sport and for the betterment of athletes from every country, not just ours. And honestly, it's for the betterment of cheaters as well. You know, I'm curious, it's a, it's an Olympic year. Um, and this is still ongoing in terms of what may or may not happen to the entire Russian team and their involvement with the Olympics, uh, in February. But, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is definitely an area that I'm very passionate in. And it's encouraging to see some strong action from the IOC. In terms of what I think should happen, um, you know, anybody that cheats, I think, should be should be banned. And if you cheat, uh, you know, there's, whole, there's all, this, all these different levels of cheating. But, you know, if you take EPO or steroids and there's proof that it was a system in place to intentionally cheat, not just what I feel happened to Yohog, which to me was a mistake. Believe what you want. That's fine. But if there was legitimate, systematic cheating, I think a lifetime ban is the only thing that is reasonable. It's not like it's a, a, a death sentence. You just don't get to play this game of cross-country skiing anymore. If you bank and you steal money, you don't get the bank anymore. I don't, I don't understand. You don't just get two years off. And so it's encouraging to see a lifetime Olympic ban. And I would like to see from FIS lifetime bans for systematic cheaters. But the, the doping struggle and anti-doping struggle can be uh, defeating if you really let, and I've struggled with this, if, I've struggled with why I'm even in sport if I'm coaching athletes to compete against cheaters. Or it can be actually a little bit enlightening. And I stumbled upon this book last year and it, it talked about this study that, that, that addressed cheating humans. And, and basically the results of it were that most humans, when given the chance to benefit 
by being dishonest in a situation where they will not be caught, whether it's giving, you know, they've received the wrong amount of change and they know it and they know the cashier doesn't know it. If they have a chance to cheat a little bit with no consequences, the study proved that most humans will cheat a little bit. And so what you're, what you're dealing with is, is you're looking at a, a species that is just inherently flawed. We're not perfect. Uh, and sometimes those flaws can express themselves in ways that make people want to cheat. And for whatever reason, I don't want to cheat. And I feel so deeply passionate about that that I, I'm raging right now, actually. I'm shaking a little bit thinking about Russians who have cheated. I'm shaking thinking about Lance who cheated, about Marion Jones, about any Major League Baseball that got popped. It makes me so furious, but if, if I call them scum, to me it's hypocritical because I'm equally flawed and just in different ways. And so to me, this whole doping thing, the, the way I've dealt with it that has kept me in the sport and fighting for clean sport has been to look at it as this human struggle. Doping is this great struggle that we're having right now as we learn how to deal with the different types of human flaws that are involved in this in cross-country skiing. And, and I'm not pissed at the Russian athletes. I feel like in a lot of ways they are the victims. This is state-sponsored. State but at the end of the day, while I would feel it would be much a much more serious crime for an American to dope because we have all these other opportunities. We have life is pretty easy. It's a little different for people coming out of different parts of the world. Russia, Russia being one of them, but they're still cheating and it needs to be stopped. And my, my feeling is that the IOC is at a juncture and FIS is at a juncture and these the international federations, including U.S. Ski and Snowboard, we're at a juncture where if, if we don't drop the hammer and clean up sport and stop playing politics so that we get the next World Cup bid or we get the next Olympic bid, if we put all that stuff away, we can have this sport that is as clean as it can possibly be for our kids in the future moving forward. And if it doesn't, if the IOC, to me, if they don't ban the entire Federation of Russia from the Olympics. That will be unbelievable. I think that will set sport back so many years. I think it'll take a dive like cycling did for me. I will probably never watch the Tour de France. Floyd Landis, U.S. Postal, Lance, they killed cycling for me. And I'm so afraid of cross-country skiing being killed for me. And it is close. And that decision is soon. And... I'm really afraid of, of what it means for the future of sport. And it's, it's in the hands of dirty people, man. So when you, yeah. What do you mean? It's in the hands of dirty people, like the decision-making process or people in positions of power, you know, that, that, yeah. that yeah. are politicians that whose, whose job success relies on being political, which basically means being a pushover. You know, being willing to say, well, we're willing to have a little bit of doping take place so that we can make us maximize our profits because it's really important for Russia to be involved in the Olympics. And I, for the Olympic movement, it is. But for sport, right now, oh man, and I feel bad for my Russian friends because I have a lot of those guys 
that at least to this point have been my friends and I'll be willing to keep them as such as they are. Um, but I don't think their team deserves to be at the Olympics under the Russian flag. I think they can compete under a neutral flag, athletes that are proven to be clean. And I would absolutely support that because they're awesome people. But the crime is, is what we need to address first ahead of the awesome people. Do you, um, do you recall the book that you were reading last year about like human behavior and cheating? Yeah, it was the, the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. It's a game changer. Read, read it. Okay. I feel like we're good. Um, so, you know, I do read faster skier and I even read the comments, um, because I, uh, would feel ignorant if I didn't, but I, I don't respond to them because that to me is not the place for, for me for efficient open dialogue. But in, and you can, this can be on the record as a part of the podcast if you want, but if people, um, have thoughts, uh, my number is four three five six four zero eight five four three. It's also the same number in Europe. Just mind you, I'm six to eight or nine hours ahead of you. And um, my email is mwhitcomb at ussa.org. And always psyched to hear people's thoughts, whether it's uh, complimentary or criticism. Just remember, don't hit me when I'm in a sensitive place. I need to sort of have closure here on, and I, I only know you listened to the Pete Vordenberg interview and maybe you didn't get through it all, but Pete asked me about like what the feedback was. And I, you know, I was like, Oh, I've heard from a couple of people. What have you heard? And he said, you know, I know Matt Wickham listened to at least part of it. If you did listen to that interview with Pete, there was a section on uh, Jason Cork's mom's or dad's chocolate chip cookie recipe. Yeah. Oh, you were? Yeah, I was there for that. Really? Okay. I was in the wax room when Willie and Francie pulled up. I think it was just Willie, actually, but Francie, for whatever it's worth, is his sweet mom's name. Okay, and and were and were they good cookies? Do you actually remember that? I do. They were unbelievable, as was the beer he delivered. Okay, all right. Yeah. And was Pete's kind of description of that whole situation, like, he, he looked like a kind of a guy that would get out of the car and could knife you, but he comes up with a tin of cookies and gives you a big hug. Oh yeah. It's like, if you, um, it was like, if you could draw a caricature of an actual series of events, that's how I felt Pete's, uh, retelling of the story was, you know, like a normal character caricature is just like a still shot. But like I was, I, I thought Pete created this unbelievably accurate um, but theatrical tale of how it all went down with a cookie drop. Okay, well, Matt, thank you for your time and um, really appreciate it. Thanks for your thoughts and safe travels and good luck uh, coming up this year. Thanks, Jason. I enjoyed talking with you. As always, thanks for listening and we hope you've made it on to some snow.